the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. I happened to go to a concert of Ozzy Osbourne. I wanted to see it myself. I saw 17,000 kids there. Not a smile in the whole group. Very somber. And it's not music. I mean, an old guy like me would say, well, you don't understand. Well, I'm telling you, it's not music. It's frantic, frantic noise. And I saw 17,000 kids that raised their hands like this, which is the sign of the devil, as you know. And they said, Ozzy, 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 Ozzy. October 26th, 1984, 19-year-old John McCollum of Indio, California was found dead in his bedroom from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. His family claimed to see no warning signs that this tragedy was coming. And according to his father, Jack, he was, and I quote here, a perfectly normal kid, really doesn't show any signs of depression at all, and happy, and all of a sudden, six hours, he's dead. No one could explain it. The only thing we know is he was listening to this music, end quote. Still spinning on the turntable by John's side was Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. The needle dragging at the end of side one. The last song on the end of side one is the song you heard at the top of the show, Suicide Solution. Before that, you heard the voice of Thomas Anderson the lawyer hired to represent the family when they pressed charges against Ozzy Osbourne and CBS Records for the death of their son. They claimed that the song Suicide Solution was not just a harmless heavy metal song, 
but a direct call to action to convince impressionable young listeners to kill themselves. Now, a sudden death like that, especially when it's someone so young, is devastating. It feels so unfair and confusing. I mean, you can't possibly imagine the grief the parents must have felt in those months to follow. They were looking for an answer. They were looking for some explanation as to how this could happen. And they felt they had found it. At the end of side one, the Blizzard of Oz. Evil thoughts and evil doings. Hold alone, you're hanging growing. Thought that you'd escape the reaper. You can't escape the master keeper. This is the Opus, brought to you by Consequences Sound and Sony Legacy. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. Today, in our final episode of our season covering Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz, I want to cover the other side of Ozzy's success, the backlash. Now, Ozzy reveled in his ability to shock. He loved to push boundaries. I mean, offstage. I mean, quite famously, at the meeting where he signed the contract for Blizzard of Oz, he brought two white doves to release as a symbol of peace between him and the label after a contentious time. And then... Quite spontaneously, and while definitely drunk and high, he bit the head off of one of the doves in front of everybody, tossed it down on the table in front of him. I mean, ever since he was a kid, he was a pest, a jester. Ozzy said in interviews that he uses jokes to cover up his insecurity. He played the fool as protection. But Ozzy's no fool. He's always known how to push the right buttons, to get a rise out of folks, to get what he wants. I mean, one of my favorite stories about Ozzy. All the members of Sabbath, they all grew up together. Before they were a band, they all went to school together. And nobody was crazy about Ozzy, but Tommy Iommi and Bill Ward hated him at school. They could not stand him. Years later, Iommi and Ward's band had just broken up, and they were looking to start something new. Fatefully, they saw an ad in a music shop that said, and I quote, Ozzy Zig needs gig, dash, has own PA, end quote. Now, those last three words were magic. And for those who don't know, a PA is what you need to perform a concert. I mean, you can run the guitars and the bass to the amps, and you don't need to mic the drums, but you need a PA for vocals. And more importantly, you need a PA to be loud. And they wanted to play music loud, but PAs were expensive, and everyone in Birmingham was poor. Iomi and Ward saw that ad and thought, we know an Aussie, but there's no way that... Ozzy has a PA. When they showed up at the address listed and the door swung open, it was old, annoying John Ozzy Osbourne from school. They almost bailed. But he had a PA, and they needed a singer, and Sabbath was born. Here's Ozzy Osbourne. Wants to sing in a band, can't play any instruments, can't start a band on his own, and realizes, I gotta get a PA. That is a man who knows how to get what he wants. That is no fool. Black Sabbath, of course, goes on. And for those next ten years, you get the feeling that they may never have learned to like Ozzy, 
but they couldn't help but love Ozzy. And that's what makes Ozzy so special. That's his magical power. Ozzy knew what he was doing. On the road with Sabbath, Ozzy was the practical joker. You know, famous for hotel mayhem. Always ready to one-up people, to shock and entertain. If you haven't read Motley Crue's biography, The Dirt, there is a legendary scene where a quote-unquote gross-out contest escalates to a point where Ozzy snorts a line of ants up his nose. My favorite part about this legend is that Ozzy says he can't remember if it's true or not because he can't remember any part of the tour with Motley Crue. <clears throat> but Ozzy's guitarist, Jakey Lee, claimed in a recent interview with Tone Talk, and I quote, I was there, and I never saw ants. I was right there. He snorted a little spider. There was not a trail of fucking ants there. Tommy Lee says it. Nikki says it. Ozzy says it. They were fucked up. I was not. I was just trying to get a fucking suntan. That's all I was doing. They were getting fucked up. Ozzy snorted a tiny little stupid spider that was crawling across. But there were no ants. There was no fucking ants. I don't care what the other guys say. There was no ants. End quote. (laughs) Ah, I love that explanation. There were no ants. He just snorted a little spider up his nose. But there were definitely no ants. Ozzy would be the first one to tell you He's no musician. He's an entertainer. He doesn't read music. He doesn't play instruments. He doesn't know notes. He just sings what's in his head, which, hey, that singing has resulted in help creating a genre then reinventing that genre and some of the most best-selling songs from that genre. So he's, he's doing pretty good for a guy who doesn't sing. But his power wasn't ever his voice. It was his ability to entertain, to move and manipulate people, and his willingness to go to any length to get a rise out of them and win them over and achieve his goals. Whether it's convincing his dad to somehow scrounge up some money so he can be the only guy in town with a PA, or he's down on his knees poolside sniffing a line of ants to get a laugh out of Motley Crue, or he's standing on stage pretending to be the satanic madman in order to get 17,000 kids to raise their fists in the air and chant Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy. Ozzy was a very charming character, despite the idea that he was presenting this identity as the Prince of Darkness. This is Chuck Klosterman. Uh, Where to begin with Chuck Klosterman? Uh, Sex, drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Uh, What if we're wrong? Fargo, Rock City, GQ, Esquire, New York Times, ESPN, Grantland, rest in peace. Probably the most respected and revered pop culture critic in America today. Also, lifelong metal fan. He is not a threatening character. I mean, that's, that's the important thing about Ozzy as a frontman, that he brings all of the iconography of metal that is associated with sort of darkness and Satanism and sex and drugs and all of that. But he is very likable, uh, almost sort of like a jester at times. For people that grew up in hard rock and heavy metal, like Chuck did, it's inconceivable that anyone would perceive Ozzy as a danger. And for people who didn't grow up in the early 80s, it's even more insane. I mean, the notion that the lovable old Ozzy Osbourne from the Osbournes was a satanic threat to society with lyrics that could convince someone to kill themselves just seems, like, ludicrous. It's a a complicated deal because... 
if you're Geraldo Rivera or you're the television show 2020 or you're the LA Times and you have no relationship to hard rock, you look at Ozzy Osbourne, you know he came out of this band Black Sabbath, you heard that he's bitten the head off a dove, you know, in a in, in, in the offices of like a record label or whatever. So it seems real menacing and dangerous. He's charming to people who were in that world and did not see him the way they would see somebody like King Diamond or, or you know, like uh, Peter Steele or any of these guys who would become consciously dangerous. Even Marilyn Manson, somebody who wanted to be perceived as dangerous. Ozzy did not seem that way to people who were into hard rock. I mean, he was pretty funny. If you see him live, he's just so fixated on showing the audience that he appreciates that they're there. I think that is kind of the dichotomy of him that, that, you know, that if you, if you know nothing about Ozzy Osbourne, you assume he's some kind of dangerous Satanist. And if you know a lot about him, um, he's almost like a Charlie Brown character or something like this lovable loser type. Needless to say, the parents of John McCollum didn't know anything about Ozzy Osbourne. Their lawyer, Thomas Anderson, didn't know anything about Ozzy Osbourne, and the media covering this chose not to know anything about Ozzy Osbourne. And the family, grieving as they may have been, desperate as they may have been, seemed to have been led astray by their lawyer and the media, because they really didn't have much of a case. And first and foremost, because the song Suicide Solution is not a directive to convince people to commit suicide, but was, in fact, a lament for the death of a friend and a warning about the dangers of alcohol. Halsey always insisted it was about the alcoholism-related death of his friend, Bon Scott, as ACDC. This is Beth Weingartner. She's written a lot about heavy metal music and its cultural impact around the world, but most germane to this subject is a book she wrote called The Columbine Effect, which talks about uh, moral panic around heavy metal music, video games, comic books, those sorts of things. And that the phrase suicide solution was about alcohol as a, a solution, chemically speaking. A solution is something that dissolves other substances. They were trying, they were trying to be clever. But it was a little too over the heads of people who weren't into the music. So that's how you get people jumping to the wrong conclusion. Unfortunately for Ozzy and artists everywhere, the court did not jump to any rash conclusion. They ruled in his favor, and he was found innocent. But not just because if you'd done any nominal digging, you could see that the song Suicide Solution was not a directive to make people kill themselves. But more importantly, Ozzy was protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution, to sing about whatever the hell he wanted to. Ultimately, the judge did decide there wasn't anything wrong with having this song on the album, and I'm going to quote a little bit. His name is John Cole. He said, Musical lyrics and poetry cannot be construed to contain the requisite call to action for the elementary reason that they are simply not intended to be and should not be read literally. You know, he's talking about the sort of metaphor, metaphorical nature of these works of art. 
And then he said, reasonable persons understand musical lyrics and poetic conventions as the figurative expressions that they are. Which is such a crucial ruling for the First Amendment rights that are granted to artists in America. That we are free to express ourselves and those expressions should be taken only as expressions and we do not have to censure our expressions in order to protect the lowest common denominator among us. But Judge Cole does not stop there. He goes on to bring up an even more important point. We have to look very closely at the First Amendment and the chilling effect that would be had if these words were held to be accountable. Um, in that case, he means for, for a suicide. Even if Ozzy Osbourne had intended to express that suicide was preferable to the rigors of daily living, he had the constitutional right to make such a statement. Mr. Crowley What went on in your head held up on appeal as well. Despite all of that, another case was brought against Ozzy by another family for the same thing a few years later, for which Ozzy was also found innocent. It is important to note that the death of these kids are a tragedy, and that is something no one denies, Ozzy included. But the notion that it was the heavy metal that caused them to do it just does not hold up when you look at the numbers. When um, a piece of media is blamed for um, an act of violence, which suicide is, I always look at, you know, the sales statistics. Ruth Beth Weingartner again. In this case, Blizzard of Oz sold more than 5 million copies in the USA, certified platinum five times. There were two lawsuits alleging suicide. Maybe there were other kids who committed suicide while listening to it. We don't know. But if you look at the overwhelming majority of listeners did not have this kind of reaction to it, and probably these teenage boys didn't either. At the end of the day, it, it probably wasn't anything to do with whatever music they were listening to. And this wasn't an isolated incident either. People in their 30s and older will remember this, but anyone younger may not understand that this was a national emergency. The satanic panic. Look it up. This wasn't just limited to music. People were seeing Satan everywhere. And despite no actual evidence ever surfacing to show any rise in satanic worship, the spotlight was shined on heavy metal, Dungeons and Dragons, and damn near anyone with long hair and a black t-shirt. And at the same time, Tipper Gore, wife of Al Gore, and an organization called the Parents Music Resource Center, was leading the charge to limit access to music via a rating system, like the movies. This ultimately led to the um, development of the parental advisory sticker. What these movements had in common was they both sought to censor art and limit people's access to art and ultimately hold artists accountable for people's reactions to their art. You know, by today's standards, with global warming and war all the time, this whole debate seems ancient, you know, sort of adorable. Satan? You know, I, th I thought we stopped worrying about Satan in the 17th century with the Salem witch trials, but this wasn't that long ago. This was the 1980s. It seems strange and performative to 
younger people now that this was something that people were worried about. We're back with Chuck Klosterman here. Because it it seems like a, a social problem that uh, you wouldn't have to worry about. Like, you know, it's like it's not like a kid coming into a school and shooting it up. It's like, it, I think that they think of that as a social problem or as the idea that, that kids were into Satanism because of this music uh, just seems crazy. Although, to be fair, Satanism in metal, that was a trope that was being used by the artists. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, uh, you like Shout at the Devil, the Motley Crue record, it just, it's, the cover is just a pentagram. Okay, that for a lot of people, that was the first time they had ever seen a pentagram in their life, you know? Um, the Iron Maiden, like seeing Member of the Beast, you know, and saying 666 in the song, that was part of um, like the trappings or the signifiers of metal at the time. And it wasn't in truth, I think a dangerous thing at all, but it must've seemed odd for parents to only kind of see the surface of these things to see so much iconography that is not created to be, Oh, you could perceive that to be satanic. It's like, that's the idea. And even with those overt Satanic symbols being an intrinsic part of heavy metal at the time. Klosterman agrees. The panic aspect, though, I mean, that was, of course, a media construction. I mean, I would mentioned Geraldo Rivera earlier. There was a, a very memorable special, a primetime special he had done about uh, the relationship of metal culture and kind of male youth culture uh, and like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that with the worship of the devil. You know, it would be people talked about it. I mean, it was interesting if you were if you were a teenager like I was. I mean, you were not drawn to the idea that these bands were worshiping the devil, but you were drawn to the fact that people thought they were and that that sort of made them a different kind of group. You know, I like I don't think anyone picked up Motley Crue, shot at the devil, and thought, I bet these guys worship the devil, who actually wanted the record. Like, the people who thought that had no interest in the music whatsoever. So it's clear from where we sit in 2019 that the satanic panic back then was absurd. There's no evidence to back it up. It was truly a media construction. And we can all breathe a sigh of relief that the courts did the right thing and protected Ozzy's First Amendment right to expression. But one of the things that I love about Chuck Klosterman's writing and the way he thinks is that he's able to see through some of the fog of culture. And to him... The debate around suicide solution now isn't so much about the First Amendment anymore, but more about our culture's changing expectations around an artist's responsibility to society. The central thing is the title, right? So if you're an artist and you're going to make music that young people are going to buy, you know, do you need to ask yourself what will happen if people misunderstand this music? 
Like, you know, is there a real risk that someone will misunderstand it um, in a profound way, a way that would, could cause them to harm themselves or other people? Like if somebody uh, wrote a, a sarcastic song that was titled Shoot Up the School, you know, it's like, is that a bad idea? Even if your intention is to comment on the insanity of school shootings, is it possible that the way the song is presented could make someone think you're actually telling them or instructing them to do that? So I don't really see the suicide solution case as a First Amendment issue. I think it has more to do with the, the, the idea of what matters more, the intended message or the received message. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, you know, uh, philosophically, it seems strange to not side with the idea of the intended message. Like, philosophically, it seems odd to say someone needs to limit their own artistic freedom or their own artistic creativity because of the, the, the minute possibility that someone is going to be confused by it. And a confused person now is a dangerous person. So I always care more about the intention, but I feel like society has changed. And I think that we are now at least going through an era, maybe it'll be like this way from now on, but it's certainly this way right now, where the received message matters much more than the intended message. And, you know, it's just, I I think that is, is how people look at these things now, that they care less about what a musician wants to do and much more about what happens regardless of if that was what that they had want or even imagined. As absurd as these cases brought against Ozzy seem now, what Chuck says is important to remember, that our culture's morality evolves over time. And as a result, these moral panics will take on different forms. Because they happened before Ozzy. It's comic books and countless regular books and even jazz music. And they've happened since. With punk music and rap music and dance music and video games and again with video games and again with video games. So it's important to be reminded of this part of our history. So that we're ready to defend against these attacks. Because it's not a matter of if we'll see another moral panic like this. It's just a matter of when. And when it does come, it's important to remember that before you jump to conclusions about what the piece of culture in question is doing to the youth of the day, it's important to stop and ask them what the youth of today is getting out of it. Because over time, the evidence has not shown that heavy metal and Ozzy Osbourne was destroying the youth of America, but According to Beth Weingartner. In fact, the reverse is true. Research shows that kids who are listening to heavy metal are calmed and soothed by the music. She's referring to a study by the University of Queensland uh, in Australia and the Australian Public Research Institute in Brisbane that focused on heavy metal, emo, hardcore, punk, screamo, and various other subgenres that could be categorized as extreme music and revealed that extreme music didn't, in fact, cause anger but extreme music matches and helps to process anger. The study goes on to say, we found the music regulated sadness and enhanced positive emotions. When experiencing anger, extreme music fans liked to listen to music that could match their anger. 
The music helped them explore the full gamut of emotion they felt, but also left them feeling more active and inspired. Results showed levels of hostility, irritability, and stress decreased after the music was introduced. And the most significant change reported was the level of inspiration they felt. End quote. I always say maybe the problem was that they were not listening to enough heavy metal. Because there's a, there's a level of catharsis here. Um, you know, when, you, when you're feeling frustrated, you're feeling mad, or you're feeling the way that teenagers feel, that you have an outlet here where somebody is, it feels like speaking the truth about how things really are and how things really feel. And just having somebody else say those things is such a big relief. It's not that people are choosing this music as uh, an inspiration for what they're about to do, but more like they're looking for some sort of comfort. So what the lawyer Thomas Anderson saw when he witnessed 17,000 kids chanting Ozzy over and over again. That wasn't Ozzy casting some sort of sinister spell over the youth of America. That was Ozzy doing what he does best. Entertaining. Putting himself out there over and over again. Night after night. Year after year. For us. I admit, I am a relatively new member to the Church of Ozzy Osbourne, but I, for one... I'm eternally thankful for the Prince of Darkness and all he has done for us. <laughs> this has been The Opus, brought to you by Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy Records. Season 5, Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne. We're going to be back with Season 6. It is a record I am very excited about. One of my favorite bands of all time, The Clash, and their punk rock masterpiece, London Calling. Oh, that's going to be a good one. Can't wait to sing my teeth into that. I want to thank our guests for this episode, Chuck Klosterman. If you're not familiar with his work, just Google it. He's a fantastic read. A treasure of a mind, and it was a real privilege to get to speak with him. I also want to thank Beth Weingartner. She's doing some really interesting writing on heavy metal and its influence in pop culture around the world. The Columbine Effect, which I have mentioned earlier, is fantastic, but she also has a great book called Tenacity, which explores heavy metal in the Middle East and Africa. Really, really fascinating stuff. Of course, if you want to hear a great collection of Ozzy's songs curated by the staff at Consequence of Sound, be sure to check out ozzyosborne.lnk.to. That's ozzyosborne.lnk.to. It'll let you choose the streaming site of your choice, and you can uh, dive right into the entirety of the Prince of Darkness's catalog. But, of course, give Blizzard of Oz one more spin. And then after that, listen to Diary of a Madman. Because that's the same crew that made Blizzard of Oz, followed up right immediately. It's Ozzy, it's Bob Daisley, it's Lee Kerslake, and it's, of course, Randy Rhodes. And it is undoubtedly equally as good as Blizzard of Oz. And some people might say even better. Don't fight me over that. I'm just reporting what people tell me. If you like what you're hearing from the Opus, be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if it's Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating or review. It really does help us a great deal. And uh, spread the word. Tell your friends. Start with Willie. Come on into Blizzard of Oz and get ready for season six, London Calling. And last, but certainly not least, if you or anyone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free. It's a 24-hour hotline. And there's always someone there to listen. The number is 1-800-273-TALK. 
That number again is 1-800-273-8255. For Consequences Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off-limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. 